Open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 10. Let's dive in. So since it's been two weeks since we've officially met, I have uh, a little bit extra lengthy of an introduction to help kind of catch us up to speed. We don't need to go through the full outline of the entire book of Romans. Hopefully everybody has a study sheet. If you do, follow along. Last or two weeks ago, we talked about chapter 9, and we titled that message, The Ghost of Israel Past. And since it's the Christmas season, I figured we would just continue with the Charles Dickens, uh, what's that called, the Christmas Carol? Christmas story? Yeah, Christmas Carol. Carol. Thank you. Carol. We'll just go with that theme, and tonight's message is called The Ghost of Israel Present. Who do you guys think the ghost is? Jesus. The Holy Ghost. Oh. Follow along in your intro. Chapter 9... You have two ears and one mouth. What does that tell you? Talk as much as more than you listen. <laughs> hey, Bush W. Introduction. Chapter 9 begins a three-chapter parenthesis in Paul's thesis on righteousness. And as we saw two weeks ago, he pauses the conversation on the Christian's walk to discuss the nation of Israel and their place in the New Testament. Now, you guys will get that when I say the New Testament there, I'm not talking about the 27 books that comprise the last third of your Bible. Talking about the New Testament, meaning the New Testament in His blood. Every, the, the day and age in which we live in, from the moment Christ died up until this very present time, up until the rapture. That's what we mean when we say the New Testament. What is Israel's place? Where do they fit in? Last week, or two weeks ago, we looked at their past election, or service to God, in other words, and how they wasted the privileges and promises God entrusted to them. And as a result, chapter 10 reveals their present rejection. Now, this rejection is twofold. Presently, they are rejecting against God in their national, or they're presently rejected against God in their national rejection of Jesus as Lord, and presently from God in his rejection of them being his chosen vessel of service. It's twofold there. Now, if you've been paying attention the last couple of weeks, this should cause an element of fear within us. If he's willing to do this to the apple of his eye, what's to say it can't happen to us? You think about the entire history of Israel, and as I already mentioned, two-thirds of your Bible is about Israel. A bulk of it is. And when we get to a latter part of the New Testament, boom, dealing with Israel again. <coughs> How much care and concern, all of the battles that he did, all of the miracles he did for the nation of Israel in their entire history, all of those Sunday school stories you guys grew up listening to. How much love and mercy and grace he had towards them. And if he's willing to come to the point where he says, you know what, handing you a bill of divorcement, we're going to be separated for a time. I'm going to go over here to a nation, to a people that will respond to me. He's willing to do that after 4,000 years of his people. What's to say we're immune from that happening to us? So regardless of where you find yourself in your spiritual journey, chapter 10 provides great hope that God's mercy endureth forever. I don't know if any of you guys... Uh, have ever read Psalm 136. But if you're struggling with maybe just how could God forgive me for what I've done or how can a person, maybe I've wronged a person in here or in my family or at my school, how could they ever forgive me? Why would God want to use me? I highly suggest reading Psalm 136. You know what's unique about that, that chapter? 
Every single verse in Psalm 136 ends with the phrase that we just read, for his mercy endureth forever. God does not repeat himself often in scripture. For him to take every single verse of that psalm and end it with that statement packs a wallop of a punch. So point number one, we're going to see how salvation is offered for all. The first 13 verses of Romans chapter 10 will say that. In letter A, we're going to see Israel's problem and solution for all. Hopefully you're already starting to see a running theme of what tonight is going to be about. And hopefully you're already thinking about what this chapter is about because of a couple infamous verses from this chapter. But maybe you've never seen it in light of the context we're going to look at. Follow along with me in verse 1. Paul says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for who? Is that they might be what? He picks right up here in chapter 10 with where he left off at the beginning of chapter 9. Remember how we saw it two weeks ago where he said, man, I would wish myself were accursed from God if only my people, the nation of Israel, would be saved, if they could receive Christ. I have great heaviness and sorrow in my heart, he says, beginning of chapter 9, and he carries it over in the beginning of chapter 10, that he wants all of Israel to be saved. I remind you, what's your prayer and burden for your lost friends and family members? continues in verse 2, For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. we got to talk about this for a little bit because he's talking about Israel here, and that's the context of it. But really, when I look at Christianity today, you really see there's, there's two different types of churches within Christianity. You have those that are very zealous. And for those of you who are taking notes, zeal just means very, very passionate. You're very, very zealous. You have just this, this spirit about you, this fervor, this passion to want to serve and please God. And he says that Israel, they have a zeal. Man, you won't find anyone that's more of a religious zealot than Israel. You heard Pastor Tom, if you were here on Sunday or if you listened to the live stream, Pastor Tom talking about those at the Wailing Wall in Israel, how there are some Jews today that every single day are putting their hands up on the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem, constantly praying for peace in Jerusalem, constantly praying that their Messiah would come. And it's so heartbreaking because He did come and they missed it. So when he says that they have a zeal but without knowledge, that's the second half. That's where the balancing act comes in. They have a zeal. They have this religious fervor, but they don't have the knowledge of the Scriptures to have seen that their Messiah already came and they crucified Him. And it's like that today in churches too. Some churches, and not to dog on anybody or anything like that, at least not tonight, but some churches, they are very, very caught up in being very zealous, very passionate about serving God, to whereas they will have just creating this atmosphere of religious zeal and of fervor and of excitement, and really it, it does bolster up the emotions, and it causes people to be excited about God, and usually this kind of takes the form in the sense of they might have like an hour and 15 minute worship session 
with music playing and it gets your emotions pumping. It gets you in the mindset to serve and worship God. And then the pastor comes out and he only does a 15 to 20 minute message. Now, the reason I bring that up for those of you guys who have been tracking with us on Sunday mornings on how to study the Bible, we looked up the first time just two weeks ago that the word worship shows up in the Bible. Anybody remember where it's at? Genesis. Genesis 20... 22. Close. With Abraham being asked to sacrifice his only son, Isaac. And Abraham says to the two lads that were with him, wait here because me and my boy, we're going to go up the mountain and worship. The first time the word worship is brought up in Scripture, it's tied to sacrifice. It's tied to a faith offering where you're trusting God to do the impossible. That's what worship is, as defined by the Bible. Again, do we still call singing on Sunday mornings worship? Absolutely. There's nothing wrong with that. But what that should do is not create a bunch of hype within us that then doesn't get balanced out with the knowledge that he's talking about here in Romans 10 too, about having the Word of God preached and taught and expounded upon in what is known as a little 20 to 25 minute sermonette. We need meat. The Bible talks about how when we're babies in Christ, when we're newborn Christians, yeah, we need the simplicity. We need the fundamentals of the faith, the milk, in other words. Because we wouldn't give Lila a T-bone steak, would we? It's tempting. <laughs> she would slobber all over it. You couldn't eat it afterwards anyways. Well, I guess you wouldn't. Actually, I would too. But we wouldn't do that. You know Why? Because she's not mature enough to handle the stake. But as a Christian believer grows in his or her walk, they should grow to the point where they're able to handle deeper doctrinal things of the Word of God. And that knowledge is a necessity in order to balance out the zeal and the passion and the fervor you get. Some churches don't do that, where it's all hype, but no meat, no Word of God. But then you have the other side of the spectrum. We have a lot of people who have a lot of knowledge. A lot of knowledge where it's all about doctrine, 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 and all they want to do is just debate doctrine. And sometimes they like to have podcasts where they debate things uh, that are the gray areas of the Bible that talk about, well, do you think God did this? Or do you think maybe God didn't do that? It's one of those things we're not going to know until we get to eternity, but let's talk about it for an hour to an hour and a half and get people excited about the Bible. And nothing wrong with that either. Except what those podcasts and what some of those churches who exemplify that kind of attitude tend to do is it just tends to take your head with all that information and go and blow it up with knowledge. To whereas you don't do anything with it. But hey, praise God, you know a lot about the Bible and you can handle your own in an argument, but you're not taking it to the lost world. You're not balancing it out with a zeal and a passion. What that kind of knowledge and what those kinds of, that kind of truth and meat is supposed to do is cause you to go, wow, what a book. That's why we're going over how to study the Bible. And I really hope and I pray that you guys are seeing that on Sunday mornings. And even with what we're covering on Wednesday night with Romans, that you guys are, your eyes are opening up to see, holy cow, the vastness of God's word. And what he has put in here for us, I never knew half this stuff existed. Wow, what a book. 
but that it doesn't just stop there. But as you go deeper and deeper into the book and you say, wow, what a book, it then causes you to say, wow, what a God that I serve. And the more that you're falling in love with the book, the more you're falling in love with Him, the closer your heart is knit with His heart in Psalm 86, and you develop a passion and a burden to impart that knowledge with zeal to the lost world. Proverbs 11.1 1 says that a false balance is an abomination. If you're out of balance in your life, or maybe you're hanging out too much with your school friends, your worldly friends, and not enough with the people here in this room, like it or not, it's going to affect your walk. You may not do and say the things that they say, but it will affect you. I mean... You listen to enough, and again, I, I'm not saying what kind of music to listen to or not listen to or what kind of movies to watch or not watch. I do the same thing too. But if you are constantly listening or watching or hanging out with people like that, it will have an effect, some kind of effect on you. You've got to balance that stuff out. And it's the same thing with churches. Unfortunately, a lot of churches, they might be very, very zealous and passionate and they have no knowledge. And the others might be very, very knowledgeable and very doctrine and Word of God oriented, but they fail to carry it out with the passion side where they're actually doing something with what they've learned. Solid needs to be a ministry that is balanced on both zeal and knowledge. And so on your outline, how this kind of works out and applies to you guys based upon what we just saw in verse 1 about his heart's desire for Israel to be saved, and man, they are zealous, but not according to the knowledge, not according to the truth. Question for you. Do you have a burden to know truth in order to impart truth to the lost? Ask yourself that question in the quiet of your own seat where no one in this room can actually hear your thoughts, so you don't need to put on a front. You don't need to try to convince yourself of it. Just be real and honest with yourself. Do you have a burden to know truth in order that you might impart truth to the lost? Because I'll tell you what, Paul makes it abundantly, or not Paul, Hosea makes it abundantly clear. Chapter 4, verse 6, God speaking to Hosea, he says, My people are destroyed for lack of what? <coughs> Knowledge. If I'm being honest, yeah, we do need a balance, but in today's Christianity, there's a lot more zeal than there is knowledge going on. There is not a lot of this book being taught and rightly divided and preached in churches today. He says, because thou hast rejected knowledge, I will also reject thee. Remember I was talking about the warning in our introduction to us? That thou shalt be no priest to me, seeing thou hast forgotten the law of thy God, I will also forget thy children. Yikes! Not only that, again, going back to the woman at the well, Jesus saying to this woman, Believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem, what? Worship the Father. Ye worship, ye know not what? We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews, but, and here's the kicker, verse 23, the hour cometh and now is when the true worshipers Genesis 22. Every time you see that word, think Genesis 22. True worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit, zeal, and in truth, knowledge. Why? 
How does he end the verse? Someone say it out loud. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. Does your heart care for the things that God's heart cares for? Do you care what he's seeking after? What he's looking for? What he wants? Because if you do, you need to have a balance of both zeal and knowledge, spirit and truth. That's who he's looking for to worship him. So how do I know? You know what the proof is? Look at your outline. The proof that you are that, and that you're wanting that, 2 Timothy 2.15. Who knows it? It's our headline verse for how to study the Bible. Even if you're off a little bit and you're not sure, just belt it out. We'll get through it together. That needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word truth. What are you doing? Fist bump him. Fist bump him. There you go, AJ. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And why? That's the truth side of it. But you want to know the spirit or the zeal side of it? It's 1 Peter 3.15, the verse that goes hand in hand. Whenever you think of 2 Timothy 2.15, I hope 1 Peter 3.15 comes to mind after that. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. You better have time set aside where you're meeting with God. Because the Father seeketh such to worship Him. Are you setting apart time to be with Him that you may be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh of the reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear? If you're setting apart time, zeal, spirit, and you're studying knowledge, truth, that's the proof. But it can't just end there. What are you going to do with it? Do you have a burden to know truth in order to impart truth to the lost? Paul did, and he did it. He followed up on his convictions. What about you? Just think about this week alone. What opportunities have you passed up? Look at verse 3. For they, Israel, being ignorant, present tense, talking about the ghost of Israel present, being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. I think here's a good note to place here that uh, chapter 10 is the second most references to the word righteousness. To summarize the book of Romans, the summary in one word is righteousness. That's why we titled it God's Playbook 4. Thank you. Chapter 10 has the second most references to the word righteousness out of any of the other chapters. The first one, chapter 4. And boy, does that chapter pack a punch just like this one does as far as salvation is concerned. So look at point number two here. Your peers may know that you're a Christian. Awesome. Cool. Do you know that the devils believe that Jesus is God? And they tremble? Awesome. So they know you're a Christian. But do they know their need to submit to the righteousness of God? 
Because you see, Israel here is ignorant of God's righteousness. And they go about to try to establish their own righteousness, just like your lost family members and friends. They're trying to earn their way to salvation, earn their way to heaven. And they don't realize that they need to submit to God's righteousness. You guys ever break down that word submit? What's another way you say submit? Submission. Now, if you break that up and you, you break down words and verbs, how would you split that? Put it up here on the board. How would you break this word up? Sub. Thank you, Andy. Welcome. Sub. When you think of a sub, what do you think of? Do not say a sandwich. I will chuck this at you. A teacher. <laughs> a subteacher. That's good. Thank you, Jamie. Just keep doing your JBI homework. Sub, meaning submarine or under. Beneath. Beneath. And then mission. Or miss. An objective. It's mission. An objective. An objective. Putting yourself under the mission. Putting yourself under, surrendering, yielding to the cause. What every person needs to come to is the same thing you had to come to in the moment of your salvation where you realize that it's not my way, it's not what I think is righteousness, but what your word says is righteousness, Lord. I'm going to surrender and submit to that. And those of you who did that at the moment of salvation, what you may have failed to realize, and I did it too, for two years of my saved life, I failed to realize that when Jesus told me to come unto him, all ye that labor and are heavy burdened, and I will give you rest, I failed that, to realize that his call for that wasn't just for salvation, it was for him to say, Corey, come unto me and stay, abide with me. Continue to put yourself under the mission, under the cause of Christ. Every single day, live your life in submission to what I want you to do. So many Christians lose sight of that because they have a zeal without knowledge. They'll get very fired up at church. And I get it. I've been there several times. There are a lot of Sundays and Wednesdays where I'll get fired up. And oh man, what an awesome message, such awesome truth. And then I'll go out and do nothing with it. Happens to me too. Know what happens to you. How many messages from this past summer camp have you guys already forgotten about? Do you see why we need to keep journals? Do you see why we need to keep our notes? We need to look at them every now and then. Maybe a good idea to go back over your camp commitments and look at them and evaluate to see how you've been doing. Because we so easily forget. Hebrews 2.1, you want to write that down, and everyone should commit that to memory. Hebrews 2.1 says, Therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. Most people, once they hear something, once they learn something, they just want to say, All right, I'll go on. The next listen, the next topic, let's do something new. And Jesus says, no, the things that you have heard, how about you go back through that again, and then after you're done with that, go back through it again, so that you don't let it slip. Because he knows, just like that hymn, you and I are prone to wander. 
And it's very, very easy for us every single day with the decisions we make. If we don't sanctify the Lord God in our hearts, it can be very, very easy for us to wander and to forget the things that God's already done in our hearts and our lives. Happens to the best of them. Don't think it can't happen to us. They need to submit themselves to the righteousness of Christ because Christ is the end of the law, meaning He's the fulfillment of it. Matthew 5.17 says that Jesus came not to destroy the law, but to what? Fulfill. Thank you. Fulfill the law. He's the end of it, just like He's the end, the beginning and the end of the law of righteousness for everyone that what? Verse 4. Believeth. I love it. He says in Isaiah 53, 11, He, God the Father, shall see the travail of His soul, God the Son. I think I mentioned this recently, but you want to mark down Isaiah 53 and give that a gander sometime soon. That is one of the most beautiful chapters in all the Bible, talking about Christ as the suffering servant and what He would do on the cross. Beautiful chapter from beginning to end. And shall be satisfied. How? By His knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many. In order for people to be justified by the righteous servant, Jesus Christ, they got to know about him. They have to know the requirement of his righteousness and the, the need to submit thereto. Again, kids in your classroom might know that you're a Christian. They might see that there's something different about you. But have you shown them the truth of the knowledge of the word of God of what the requirement for righteousness is. Could you stand before Christ when they are getting judged the great white throne judgment one day and honestly look your Savior in the eye and say, Lord, I am clean from the blood of their hand, of, on my hands. I am free from the blood of this man because I sounded the call. I blared the trumpet loud and clear like in Ezekiel chapter 3. I was a watchman on the wall. I let them know that judgment was coming and they chose to reject me. I can't imagine how many of my coworkers I'm going to see at that day. And I'll look at God and be like, God, they knew that there was something different. I mean, they knew that I, I led the senior high. They, they knew that I would take vacations to go on the camp. They knew all these things about me. And him just looking at me and going, yeah, but did they know about my requirement for righteousness? Did you teach them that knowledge? No, I guess I didn't, Lord. And then I look down and see their blood on my hands as they are cast off into the lake of fire forever. God got a hold of me in high school, and I realized I didn't want anyone in high school. I didn't want their blood to be on my hands. Do you have that same burden? And the reason why I tell you guys to take the more earnest heed to the things which you know is because at some point along the way, I let that truth and reality slip when I went to college. Just so happened to be down the road where I was able to go to the Bible Institute and have college and work and be at home, not on campus. And I realized, huh, you know, when class is over, everyone just gets up and either goes to their next class or they just go home because they could do that. They're at Kent Stark. So those opportunities you have to talk with kids in the hallway goes away. Because in college, everybody's on a schedule. Everybody has somewhere else they need to be. They're not going to sit around and talk at the locker. 
You're not going to have lunch where you're going to be able to sit down and talk with them. Oh, and those little opportunities you guys might have in your classrooms to share Christ when a teacher presents evolution or some other crazy doctrine, you usually have those opportunities in class. Guess what? A professor doesn't care about participation points when you get to college. That's right. They're not going to care if you participate or not, because really in college, it's all about them and how much they know. So they just talk and lecture the entire time. So those opportunities you have now, they're not going to happen in college. And instead of me doing something about it, I just kind of went about my day. And that burden and desire I had to have bloodless, guilt-free hands because I shared my faith with my classmates in high school, that quickly started to die off when I got to college. So don't let that happen to you because it'll follow with you into the workforce and the career. And then when you get a family and then they're dependent upon your paycheck, that fear really starts to go up because what if you say something that gets you fired mm -hmm. and then your family's cut off from getting to eat? So man, if there's a time for you to develop a boldness and to kill any form of shyness when it comes to the gospel, it's right stinking now. You know what it requires, as I already mentioned? First bullet point in your outline requires boldness. Acts 4.13 Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, you don't need a college degree. I refer you back to Romans chapter 6, commentary on that one. They perceived that they were unlearned, ignorant men. They marveled at them. And they took knowledge of them, Peter and John, that they what? Had been with Jesus. If you are sanctifying the Lord God in your hearts, it's noticeable. Note how I didn't say you did your devotions today. This is different. When you're with Christ, when you have a personal, intimate encounter with Christ... It changes you. It produces boldness. You should check out what Peter and John did in chapter 4. But you know what? Speaking of boldness and meeting with Christ, you know how it comes? Through prayer. Acts 4.31, the end of this chapter, when they had prayed, oh, don't miss this. When they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together. If I finish sometime within a good, uh, reasonable minute here tonight, I would like for us to get together and pray. And I'm not kidding when I say I want these walls to shake. I believe that God would still be in the business of working this way because not 200 years ago in this very country, he would do things that were inexplicable when people got together and prayed with all of their heart and poured out their souls in prayer to God. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and they spake the word of God with what? Boldness. You want boldness? You better get alone with Christ. You better sanctify the Lord God in your heart. And meet with him. You know, I was praying for you guys this week and going over, I don't know if you remember or not, end of the summer, you guys passed out these index cards of things we could be praying for you guys on. And I go through that weekly and pray for you guys through those things. Your leaders do also. 
And as I was just going through some of it, I know some of you, a lot of you guys put down boldness to share my faith, boldness to know what to say to my friends. Here's a pretty good recipe right here. Get alone with God, pray and pour out your heart until he shakes and moves things and does the inexplicable. And then in that confidence, you then go and be bold and you just speak and watch how God takes over. You know how many times in the Gospels Jesus said, hey, when you go to talk to your friends, don't pre-plan what you're going to say. Don't think through it. Don't take a script. Because when you go, I'm going to speak for you. Anybody have that happen to them? Where you're talking with a friend and you're like, holy crap, who's talking right now? It's not me. It's almost like an out-of-body experience. That happens sometimes when you teach or when you preach. Where you're like, I didn't plan on this. Most of the message tonight is kind of like that. So somebody in here must need it. But even when you're witnessing, there are times where God just kind of takes over and you're like, I didn't even know I had that verse memorized and I just quoted it to them. Yeah, because all Christ is looking for is just a willing vessel and he'll take over and it is that simple and easy. Proverbs 14, 6 says, Knowledge is easy to him that understandeth. Standing under the authority of the mission and the cause because the mission and the cause is greater than us. You know how many military and branches of the armed forces have a motto like that? Where it's the cause first, it's the mission first, and then yourself is last. Why should be a soldier in the Lord's army be any different? Letter B. So we saw Israel's problem, the solution for all. Now we're going to see man's problem going beyond Israel here, and the solution for all, a.k.a. also known as what your peers need to know to submit to the God's righteousness. Look at verse, where are we at? Seven. No. Verse six. No. Verse five. For Moses describeth the righteousness which is of the law, that the man which doeth those things shall live by them. We don't have time to turn over to Galatians chapter 3, but if you were to look over there, we looked at this before in one of the earlier chapters of Romans, where, yeah, you know what? If somebody wants to try to live their life by the law, by being a good person, they can. It's just the idea that they need to make sure that they do it perfectly every single step of the way. No fault, no error, no sins. And that's why Galatians 3 says, when you live that way, you're under a curse. Because there's no way that any of us could possibly do that. And that's what Moses is saying here. Yeah, you know what? The man who lives under the law, he better live by them. But, verse 6, the righteousness which is of faith speaketh on this wise. Say not in thine heart, who shall ascend into heaven? That is, to bring Christ down from above. Or who shall descend into the deep? That is, to bring up Christ again from the dead. In other words, he's saying, if you want to have the righteousness of faith, don't say, Lord, I'm going to do it. I'm going to come up there and my, my imperfections, I'm going to make myself holy in order to get up there. Because you're going to realize you can't. Your arms aren't long enough. Your good works are short every single time. And he says, don't say in verse 7, who shall descend into the deep? That is to bring up Christ again from the dead. Again, you know why? Because you can't do it. No one can. This is what your peers need to know about submitting to the righteousness of God. But what saith it? What does the Bible actually say? What should we say? Those of us who want the righteousness of faith. Verse 8, the word is nigh thee. 
even in thy mouth and in thy heart. That is the word of faith, which we, what? Preach. You are called to be a preacher, guy and girl. You're all given the ministry of reconciliation. Preaching requires boldness. Preaching requires confidence in what it is that you have as a message. And if you're going to be confident in your message, you better know the message in order to be able to articulate it to those who need to hear it. But look again at verse 8. He says, the word is nigh thee. He's quoting Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 14. Even in thy mouth and in thy heart, it's very, very close to you. Actually, I have a similar passage up here. It's Deuteronomy chapter 30, but I have verses 11 and 19. Check this out. He says, for this commandment which I command thee this day, it is not hidden from thee, neither is it far off. Do you realize that a lot of branches of Christianity today say that you can't understand the Bible, you can't understand salvation without some guy behind a pulpit telling you what the Bible says? Without a priest behind some kind of confessional booth? Without a pastor? Without a college professor at a Christian university so-called saying, you can't know it, because I studied the original Hebrew. I studied the Koine Greek. It's a dead language. How could you study it? No. God himself is saying that what he wants people to know, it's not hidden, neither is it far off. It's very nigh unto thy mouth, even within your heart. And you know what he's asking people to do? I call heaven and earth to record this day against you that I have set before you life and death. Those of you who were here two weeks ago and we talked about some denominations and teachings within Christianity, pay attention to the way this verse ends. I set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, what does he ask us to do? Oh, so I, I have the choice. It's a choice for me to choose life or I can choose death. Meaning my fate hasn't been predetermined for me from before the foundation of the world, independent of my own free will choosing. No, I do have a choice. I get to choose life because Christ is in the business of making truth revealed and known to all. For some strange reason, apart from creation in Romans chapter 1, and apart from the conscience in every single person's heart in Romans chapter 2, for some strange reason, He wants you and I to be mouthpieces for Him of that, so that every man and woman can know they have the opportunity to choose life. And when they choose not to choose life, they make a decision to choose death. More on that next week. Word is nigh unto thee. See, you can't fulfill, point number one, you can't fulfill the works of the law, but because Christ did, you can choose life. They need to know that. And next and number two, they need to see that salvation is easy and free due to His grace. In light of that context... Many of you probably never even thought about how verses 9 and 10 and verse 13 and verse 17 have to do with Israel's present rejection, rejecting God and God rejecting them. But here he's talking about, yeah, you know what, Israel, they're lost as a nation, nationally, as a people group. They are lost. They want nothing to do with me. But that's no different than your next door neighbor. 
They need to know the plan and purpose of salvation just as much as your neighbor does, just as much as the people on your team do, just as much as your family members do. Verse 9, That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Everyone knows Jesus Christ hung on a cross. Did you ever catch that before? How Romans 10, 9 does not say, and believe in thine heart that he died for your sins. Everybody knows as a historical fact that Christ died and was crucified. The hard part that they need to believe by faith is the fact that he rose again from the grave. Because if he did, that makes him God. If that makes him God, that means I have to give an answer for him for my sin one day. And people don't like to retain that knowledge in their heart because they love their sin. They love not having anything to hold them accountable to. And men love darkness rather than light. Verse 10. For with the heart man believeth unto what? With the heart man believeth. It's not a work. But just as Abraham in Romans chapter 4, which has the most mentions of the word righteousness in it, as Abraham believed and it was counted to him for righteousness, so you, when you believe, it is counted unto you for righteousness. And with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. For what saith the Scripture? Or for the Scripture saith, Whosoever believeth on him should not be ashamed. There's no difference between the Jew and the Greek. Salvation is for all of them, both of them, everyone who falls under that category. For the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. No special group of people there. Everyone. <clears throat> for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Gee, isn't knowledge easy to him that understandeth? In fact, that's right. Proverbs 14.6, the second time I quoted that, here's how the rest of the verse goes. A scorner seeketh wisdom and findeth it not. People in supposed Christian circles who don't like to believe that salvation is for all, they're a scorner. And they seek after wisdom, and they findeth it not. But knowledge is easy to him that understandeth, that submits to the righteousness of God, puts themselves under the mission. Point one, or the first bullet point in your outline. Let's break this down. Here's what they need to know. Believing with all your heart is evident in what you do next. Wait a second. It says, If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead. You have to confess first, and then you believe. That's not how God works. It's worded that way, yeah. But the issues of the heart proceed, or the issues of life proceed out of the heart. And in Luke chapter 6, verse 45, it says, Out of the abundance of the what? The what? Mouth speaks. You only confess that what you truly believe. But not only that, believing with all your heart is evident what you do next. For example, Acts chapter 8, verse 36 through 38. This is Philip preaching to the Ethiopian eunuch. You know what he was preaching to him, by the way? Isaiah 53, chapter I had mentioned earlier. You guys should check out. And as they went on their way, they came unto a certain water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? And Philip's like, Whoa, whoa. Before we get to that step, 
if thou believest with all thine heart. Meaning, there's no doubt or waver in here. Meaning there's no, I'm just doing this to get out of hell, free card. You believe with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He's God the Son, the second member of the Godhead. He is God in human flesh, I believe it. And after that, verse 38, he commanded the chariot to stand still, and they went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. Remember a couple weeks ago on Sunday when we talked about faith without works is dead in that passage in James chapter 2, how a lot of Christians get that confused, where they think, man, so you need to do works in order to be saved? No. What that passage we saw when we took a look at it says is that if you genuinely believe, your actions will show it afterwards. You know a tree by the what? fruit that it bears. This guy, after he believed, did something about it. He took a step of obedience and did what Christ asked him to do by being baptized. Decided to follow his Lord in obedience to his command and was baptized because he had a change in his heart. Because he believed with all of his heart. So what about you? Your actions show that you belong to the king? That you have believed with all your heart? Man, I guess I am kind of picking on churches tonight. But then again, we're in what 2 Timothy 3.1 says is the most perilous time in all of human history. Yeah, even worse than the Old Testament when all of the war and the death and the bloodshed that was happening then. And, and yeah, even worse than the Dark Ages and all the war and death and bloodshed that was happening then to our brothers and sisters in Christ. But in case you or a friend has a Bible that may look like this. Verse 37 is completely taken out of most Bibles today. Did you know that? So here's how that Bible version reads. And as they went on their way, they came unto a certain water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stand still, and they went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. You realize that most Bibles on the market today have verse 37 completely omitted, completely taken out of their Bibles. What's even funnier, they don't even renumber the verses. You'll be reading along, it'll say verse 36, and it'll just go right to verse 38. In some cases, they will have a footnote in there that says, oh, verse 37 was in some manuscripts, but it was kind of removed because, uh, and they'll give you some kind of fluff and jargon that doesn't make sense when you actually read what they say, and it just produces doubt in what it is that you're actually reading. What this kind of appears to say is that, well, I guess baptism is what saves me. And after all, my church is talking about Acts chapter 2, verse 38, and how I need to be repentant, baptized for the remission of sins, and they're completely devoid of what the context of that passage is talking about. But man, if you had a Bible where you're missing verses, that should cause you to have some questions about it. Can you actually trust that? That was a little side note, sign contingency. But after all, with what we're going to look at here in verse 17... Every word matters. If you're going to present the righteousness of God to your friends and what they need to submit to, they need to know what it is the Bible says. And you need to have confidence in the word that you're preaching. So believing with all your heart is evident in what you do next. The man got baptized. He followed his Lord in obedience. Not only that, stink. Don't look at that. 
Someone quote for me Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Simple gospel, just like Romans 10, 9, and 10. Do you know verse 10? Anybody know verse 10? No, that's Romans 10. Alright, so the verse that Kendall just quoted about grace, are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves, not of works. Here's what verse 10 says. After you get saved by His grace, for we are His workmanship created in Christ unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Oh yeah, He did predestine and preordain things that you, when you get inside of Him, when you get in Christ by faith, because of His grace, that you obey and do what He says. We were created unto good works after salvation. Believing with all your heart is evident in what you do. Don't just think because you memorized these two verses in Romans 10 at VBS one year and you did it, that you're saved. If you don't have the works, the fruit that proves there was a change that took place in you. Hebrews 4. This is an interesting one. He says, Let us therefore fear, lest the promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. He's talking about the Old Testament and when Israel crossed over the Jordan, or actually before they crossed over the Jordan, when they were in the wilderness. For unto us was the gospel preached, as well as unto them, Old Testament after Exodus, the book of Numbers, but the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. A lot of people hear the gospel today. A lot of people hear the word of God, but they're not believing it. And so it doesn't profit them. Sunday after Sunday, people go to churches. Wednesday after Wednesday, here we are now on chapter 10. The gospel's been presented in every single chapter. And some people are just here, one ear out the other. It's not mixed with faith. Second bullet point in your outline. So we talked about believing with the heart, but then he talks about confession is made with the mouth. And what you might not realize is that confessing with your mouth, it's a free will offering. You know how I know that? Because of the Bible. Psalm 119, 108 says, Except I beseech thee, the free will offerings of my mouth, O Lord, and teach me thy judgments. So if anybody from a church tries to rip you off and say that you had no choice in your salvation, God pre-chose it before you were even born, this says that when I confessed with my mouth the Lord Jesus, it was a free will offering from my mouth. But I love the fact, aside from that, and I love any chance I can to rip on Calvinism, aside from that, he says the word offerings, which should jog your mind back to worship. When Abraham had to offer his son, his only son, Isaac. Confessing with your mouth is a free will offering, but it does cost you something. Luke 12, 8. Also I say unto you, Whosoever shall confess me before men, him shall the Son of Man also confess before the angels of God. Those of you guys who are here with us on Sunday, a couple weeks back when we were talking about uh, the sea of glass and where the third heaven is and the angels of God. Uh, aside from the angels of God, who else goes up there? 
I heard one person say it. You can say it louder. Thank you. Fist bump that because Noah's not there. Satan's up there. And his minions go into that third heaven to accuse you. But when Christ is confessing about you, about you repenting and trusting in Christ to his angels, there are some other people that are up there that hear that and are not too happy to know that you have made a profession of faith and you've believed in your heart and that you're a changed being and you're no longer on his team. So what does he do? He automatically targets you to be his enemy. And he comes after you. And that's why in John 12, 42 and 43, nevertheless, among the chief rulers also, many believed on him. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. Many of you are right there. You believe... Mm, this is a toughie. Is it faith that changes you if you're not confessing him? Because you're afraid of being put out of your friend group? Oh, I'm sorry, it says put out of the synagogue. Sorry. Because you're afraid of being put out from your family members who are lost? Oh, sorry, it says put out of the synagogue. You get the point. There's a lot of people who say they believe, and maybe they genuinely do. <sighs> but Romans 10 seems to make a big deal about this confession business. Lest they should be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. They loved it when there were no family squabbles. They loved it when their friends still thought they were cool and popular. They loved it when their friends didn't make fun of them, call them names. They loved it when their friends didn't issue false accusations that could have ruined their testimony and their reputation at church or at school, rather. So they kept quiet. Hmm. Shame. Do you want that blood on your hands by keeping quiet? Some costs are worth it. Some prices are worthy to be paid. Point number two on your outline. So we just saw salvation offered for all, and now we see an epic responsibility to all who respond. Look at verse 14. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? How shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? How shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. Point letter, point letter A. Abandon it all for the sake of the call. If Stephen were here, he'd be fist pumping the air right now. It's one of his favorite songs. We are then called to preach righteousness and the return of the Lord to the ungodly. 2 Peter 2.5, you know what it says about our man Noah? Noah was a preacher of righteousness. Think about it. All that time building a boat? Noah, why are you building a boat? Uh, God's going to bring a storm. It's going to wipe all you heathens out. Oh, really? What do we have to do? Just get in the boat. How many people did he save, by the way? Just a, just his family. Yet God called him a preacher of righteousness. Success is not determined by numbers. Success is not determined by how many people you pass a track out to or, or how many people that you saved. Just the idea of, are you doing what he's asked you to do? That's success. 
Because keep in mind how many followers Christ had when he was up on the cross who stayed with him to the end. Just one. By the world's standards, he's an absolute failure. Jeremiah was a preacher. You know how many converts he had? Even less than Noah. But he did what God asked him to do in the area that God placed him in to do it. So what's God asking you to do in the school that you're placed in? Did I ever tell you guys how I wanted to transfer from Perry to Jackson? When I was a sophomore in high school and I started walking with God, I was the only kid from our senior high who went to Perry. Hated it. I had no one that was like-minded with me in my school. And I was miserable. Getting made fun of, losing my friends, taking my Bible to school with me. And I almost transferred to Jackson to be with most of the people from the senior high, from solid. And then I realized, if I leave, what witnesses are going to be here? Maybe you go to school with somebody else in this room that also goes to school with you. But you have a field and you have a friend group that maybe they don't have. That only you and you alone can reach out to. Be faithful to where you're called. Be faithful to preach. But in Jude 14, not only Noah and 2 Peter 2, 5, he called a preacher righteousness, but in Jude 14, we hear about Enoch. You know about Enoch? Not much is known of him. Check out Genesis chapter 5. Something really interesting happened to him. He walked with God, and then one day he was not. The Lord took him. He's the only person in that entire list in chapter 5 of Genesis that said he didn't die. He was taken. You know what's interesting? Enoch is the eighth person from Adam. He was taken. You really want to cook your noodle? You start looking at the genealogies and you look up the years, you have to really be good at math. I've, I, can't, I haven't done it in a while, but there were some people who have done it and done the work that showed that the moment when Enoch was translated out of here, it more than likely probably started to rain for the first time ever. Judgment came after Enoch was raptured out. Hmm. You know what Enoch preached? He was called a preacher too. He preached the judgment of the Lord. The Lord is going to be coming with 10,000 of his saints. It's the same message you have. It's the same message Jonah had. So, number two. The reason we don't see people getting saved might be due to us not knowing how to utilize the word of faith, because verse 16 says, They have not all obeyed the gospel. Isaiah saith, Lord, who hath believed our report? Gee willikers, I didn't plan this. You know what that's quoting? Isaiah 53. I think we all should read Isaiah 53 tonight. Because. Couldn't have planned that. That was all of God. I completely forgot that. Verse 17, So then, faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. That's the third mention. Isaiah 53 has come up. Because letter B, if you don't fulfill your call, do you guys see that? Most of the blanks have been all, and I kept the C on there, so all you got to do is just put A-L-L. If you don't fulfill your call, the job won't get done. I'm wrapping up. Don't worry. Now, there's a dual application here. Look at verse 18. But I say, have they not heard? Yes, verily. Their sound went into all the earth, and their words unto the ends of the world. But I say, did not Israel know? 
First Moses saith, I will provoke you to jealousy by them which are no people, the Gentiles, and by a foolish nation I will anger you. I was thinking about this, and I put it on your outline here. You know, if we don't receive, because he's saying, have they not heard, talking about our audience, the people that God's laid on our hearts to witness to. If they don't receive, man, they're going to be easily replaced. They're going to be easily replaced when they die and they go on to an eternity away from God because they've not heard. But then I started thinking, hmm, if they don't hear because we're not giving, if they're not receiving because we're not preaching and giving it out, we too can be easily replaced. More on that next week when we, chat, when we cover chapter 11, but as a little teaser, you guys ever think about Jonah? I tried looking at it, and I couldn't find out just how far away and plus the Bible's kind of silent as far as where he was at in the water when the storm came and he got swallowed by the whale or where he got spit up on the dry land. But we do know this. How long was he in the belly of the, wheel, the whale? Three days. Three days and three nights. He could have gone to Nineveh and saved that time. You ever think about who died in Nineveh during those three days and three nights? Because what happened when he eventually went to Nineveh? Everyone eventually repented, right? The entire city? Except for whoever might have died in those three days and three nights that he was caught up in the belly of the whale. We'll be replaced, but it comes at a cost. Hey, you guys know the story of Esther? A Jewish king has a Gentile bride, Queen Vashti. And something happens there. In Esther 1, 11, and 12, it says to bring Vashti the queen before the king with the royal crown to show the people and the princes her beauty, which is what Christ wants to do to you, church, because you're fair to look on. People see there's something different about you. You're not talking the way that the world is. You're not acting the way the world is, or at least you shouldn't be. That's maybe a topic for another time. But the Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's commandment by his chamberlains. She didn't sanctify the king in her heart. She didn't meet with the king. Therefore was the king very wroth and his anger burned in him towards his Gentile bride. And in chapter 2, verse 17, we see something very interesting. The king loved Esther, who was Jewish. He loved Esther above all the women, and she obtained grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown upon her head and made her Esther queen instead of Vashti. Gentile bride was replaced by a Jewish one, which is what's going to happen in Romans chapter 11, which is what's going to happen with the church when God goes back to Israel. We can be easily replaced, but it's at a cost. Just like Jonah missed out on the people that may have died in those three days and three nights, who is going to miss out on the rapture? Because you didn't tell them about Christ, and one day you're going to be taken up here, just like Enoch, and they're not going to have anyone. But for those of you who are preaching, those of you who are sharing your light, and they're not responding, you look at point two. If they don't hear you, 
keep knocking. Verse 20, Isaiah is very bold and saith, I was found of them that sought me not. I was made manifest unto them that asked not after me. God took the gospel of the Gentiles. They didn't ask for it, but they responded. But to Israel he saith, All day long I have stretched forth my hands unto a disobedient and gainsaying people. Peter was resilient. When he got out of prison, he went to the house where people were praying for him, and he knocked. No one answered the door. But Peter continued knocking. What about you? What's God knocking at the door of your heart right now for? Let's pray.